Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Poetry Worth Hearing, hosted by me, Kathleen McPhillamy, and with music by Alex Heen. In this episode, we have a range of wonderful poetry from poets like Tristram Fane Saunders, who juggles forms with the panache of Byron or Paul Muldoon, all the way over to Beth Davison and Lucy Ingrams, who in their different ways probe the boundaries of language and the page. The need to stay alive to all the different possibilities of poetry is emphasised by Jenny Lewis, poet and teacher, in her discussion of poetry she thinks is worth reading. Tristram Fane Saunders is a poet with his finger in many pies. He reviews for The Telegraph and Radio 4's front row. He has edited a selection of Edna St Vincent Millay for Carcanet. Here he reads from his poetry business pamphlet, The Rake. The Rake invites you to the weepies. Don't be lugubrious, my newest friend. Bite lugubrious. Roll it around and roll around in it. Take a dive in its lubricious bleak lagoon, lukewarm and wallowsome. Drink deep and swoon. The salt will lift you like a vast and sudden futon. A waterbed, luxurious and soft and overfed, the kind they advertise in Wyo widescreen at the multiplex. The eyeless ushers mutter, unless, unless, shush. The trailers are my favourite bit. It's dark in here. Can you remember where we wandered in from? Good. Forget about it while I brush this popcorn from your hair. Hi, my name is Tristram Fane Saunders, and tonight, on a rainy evening in Penge, I'm going to be reading some poems from my pamphlet The Rake, which came out with the poetry business this summer. Most of the poems in this pamphlet are in the voice of a really quite horrible character, who, I call him The Rake, but his actual name has been forgotten at some point in his centuries-long lifespan. He's a kind of immortal, dandy, cad, rogue, ne'er-do-well character, and um, he's one of two recurring characters in the pamphlet whose lives are intertwined. The other one is a woman called Laura, who we'll be hearing more from later, but I, um, I'm going to give you another one of the Rake's kind of attempted seduction poems. I think I wrote after, I think I realised after writing this, is the, the slightly old-fashioned expression to, to draw a bath rather than to run a bath, seems to have completely stopped being used outside of, um, well, Canada and Yorkshire, where I partly grew up. I don't hear many people saying it that much, but the rake still says to draw a bath. This turns up later in the poem. I'll stop waffling. Here's the poem. The rake would like you, in a moment, but not yet, to pour yourself out of that little peignoir and into the wet. The feet, you will notice, are clawed, a word which once meant flattered. It referred to when what soothes is sharp, my back or yours. To days when a soft soap approach would scarcely scratch the surface, but to scratch beneath the lather, lover, to scrape, to lathe, 
would bring relief, brimful and hot, and as we've time to kill, ducky, isn't it funny how we find our own terms for the act to fill? The taps become a pair of snub-nosed guns, a duel, my hand on hot and yours on cool. How I draw, partner, and you run. Now, as I said, most of the poems in this pamphlet are in the rake's voice, but this next one is in the voice of his biographer. This is From the Unauthorised Biography, Volume 4, 1730-1960. He spent twelve decades polishing his craft, studiously darkening the floorboards in dens of moderate iniquity, or decorating the red-light district windows with his gaunt reflection, Hand in hand with syphilis and debt, he whiled away ten years in private, plain or padded cells, then out again into the brittle evening, pockets rich with laudanum, neglected correspondence, old French letters, borrowed neckerchief and snuff-box, borrowed pearls. The latest melancholy smile perfected daily in his little shaving mirror. After a lifetime of these skits and turns, playing to the gallery each morning and to the private boxes every night, like a slow, malignant growth around him, unnoticed, the world began to change. Years pass. He lurches up the gilded stair from cad to rogue to fiend to devil till, tripping on, National treasure, he alights, breathless, on the upper landing. Myth. And like all myths, not quite the thing it was, elevated now to something less than truth, he grows familiar, a click, a whir, the tired back-and-forward whip of drying Polaroid, and in no time to speak of, his name dissolves a sugar cube relaxing into absinthe. All politeness, the rake agrees to sign his photograph, tussling the ringlets of the youngest fan, kissing the ringless fingers of the eldest, and all the while remembering the tale of how the pampered fox became the dog, and Narcissus in winter how he watched his own reflection as it turned to ice. I've been mentioning Laura a lot, and rather than give you a full biography, I'll give you two sentences from the back cover of the pamphlet. Um, I'll let you in on a trade secret, which you probably already knew. All those blurbs you see in the back of books where it's, Joe Bloggs is a giant of... English language letters, a towering genius. These are usually written by the authors themselves. I had to have a go at summing up these poems, and I wrote, The rake lives in lavish squalor and has never worked in his life. Laura lives nowhere. She's dead for now, but she is working on a way to solve that problem. And Laura's a kind of ghostly figure who was... The, the rake has done great wrong to, and is the only person he feels guilty about having mistreated. And she is smarter than him and more resourceful than him, and isn't going to let a little thing like being dead stop her from getting her comeuppance. Um, this poem is 
Laura's invitation. The invitation was a scribble on a folded card. At the corner of Illegible and Something Boulevard, press the bell for number blank and call my name or knock and call another name. The door is open or unlocked. How could I refuse? I could, of course, but had forgotten how. I found the place as promised. The banister was rotten. I climbed the steps and waited at the golden ballroom door. The thing was cheaply painted. Through the layered gilt, I saw deep cracks. Through the keyhole, caught a fragment of the scene. The ones you were were dancing with the ones I might have been. I'm just going to read one more poem for you, which is the last poem in the book, where the rake, like a pound shop Orpheus, descends to the underworld to make up for what he's done wrong. This is The Rake Makes Amends, a skipping song. One. The rake makes amends from skin and loose ends, saves them for Laura, the lover who lends a silver dollar to dance and pretend he's not, not alive. What she would call a gentleman caller, Mr. Rake is not. Hope small, risk smaller, he's all that she's got. What could befall her? There's no second side. The dollar she sends, it flickers and bends in natural light. Like all the rake's friends, it doesn't look right. Not something to spend, it looks like a knife. Rake slips the dollar under his collar, nicks open a vein, a thin waterfall to fall for. He drains his blood, rake falters, falls, opens his eyes. His attic squalor, gone. Scratched fats waller LPs and chaise long, dust and magrites, all the here of it, gone. The landscape altered, a river of size, a land without land. Clutched tight in his hand, the bag of amends, exactly as planned. A riverboat wends its way up the strand, Thumb out, hitch a ride. Two. Boatman smells trouble. Rake can befuddle. Prestidigitate, meddle and muddle. He tests the coin's weight. Scratches his stubble. Beckons Rake aboard. Like milk into ink, a pallid hand slinks into his pocket and picks. Boatman blinks an empty socket. The barge almost sinks. Try not to rock it. Rake's refund secured. Watch Rake as he goes with sulphur-tipped toes in high Cuban heels. These yellow brick roads make souls burn, skins peel, but Rake's cool as snow. The bricks are confused. Whoever paved them, gouged and engraved them with warped inventions, snares to enslave men called good intentions, 
Rake never gave them much notice. His shoes skip through the sunland, exactly as planned. Fool bricks underfoot with tricks underhand. The sky turns to soot as stone turns to sand. The air is a bruise. Rake's getting so close, he hears Laura's ghost not Softly sleeping, coyly comatose, but cursing, weeping, all mournful morose. She's howling the blues. Three. And here's how it ends. Rake lifts the amends, and tendrils of air fill them end to end, from toenails to hair. Merci, my old friend, for my birthday suit. Her voice clean as stone, like iced honeycomb. Rakes tame as a tomb and crumbles like loam. Remembers the room where he wanes alone and looks resolute. A life for a life. That coin like a knife slits him to pour a small toast to his wife. Laura'd adora drop, one would suffice, licks him like a fruit. Pomegranate red, her lips, where he bled, grow full as rake fades. A flick of her head shakes warm living shades of electric thread, stitched from tips to roots. Rake wrinkles, dry, wrung. He doesn't have long, as Laura escapes, the airless air throngs with nothings, all shaped like faces rake wronged, betrayed, cheated, used. A pencil-thin line, rake's lips misalign round one last resort. The ghost of a rhyme in a book you just bought. The rake takes his time, reader, from you. A wonderful pamphlet, well worth buying. You can find more information about Tristram and his publications in poetryworthhearing.biz. Now, in complete contrast, we have two poems by Beth Davison. Beth lives in France, and one of the interesting aspects of her work is the elements of multilingualism she includes. This poem is called Airbnb. In my country, or what I call that, every word is an obstacle. Even the garden table here with a geranium, a shell broken in two, dried soil in a square plastic pot that sits above its container, a small rectangular brick asks for water. The table has too many things on it. My chest has too many blockading pieces. They said near here somewhere is a city farm. I wonder if I could connect with a pig house or the belly side of an aged, smallish donkey. I dreamed of the wrong man again in that bed. I leapt from my breathing attempts in the morning at a doorbell. It was the postman. He had already moved on to next door. I took the parcel from the recycling bin, and my name in Biro so unlikely. The man in the dream is grinning. Such a shame my country's trees cannot hide me completely. In this house... There are long, heart-shaped spotted leaves and a kitchen aid, a coffee frother. 
My friend is pacing his cigarette bedroom with unpainted floorboards in a country so real when I'm in it. Claro, claro. My canción. Como existir en idioma diferente. The long length mirrors in this house seem to shrink me. The entry, the hallway, the kitchen, which gives slightly under my bare feet as though padded, is the same same shape as one I knew a man in. He'd offer me coffee and make it ever so slowly, hand trembling. That kind of love never stops, does not know stoppage, is water and pebble at the same time. I'd like to imagine these flowers and dried plants and delicate chairs cast an eye at by him. I eschew all prettiness. Pig-like he really was. He too had cats he, about he always eyed but didn't know how to touch. The bedsheets the bed sheets smelled of otherness, yet so British I muttered, Oui, je dors, c'est bon, je vais juste aller dormir, and left the light on. I wrote a message to my father I will not send. The room up in the top of the house, with white walls on the houses in front I looked at as I tried to breathe, really wanting. What folly brings me to want quiet when I crave cockerels? The man I dreamed of rising up again, the sun setting just behind him. Here alone white cabbage butterflies navigating the wildflower bed. And I try affirmation over breakfast. I will seek a hairdresser. I will seek a pharmacy. I will breathe later when the house breathes with me. I will explain all this to the pigs. I will wear walking boots today. I will finger all the stone flags in the conservatory. I will put my ear against them. I will cry like this British seagull, sick of houseplants, hankering not for estuary, not for inlet, but for wide, bashing, white rift ocean. This poem is called Lieu Abrité. Oh, lieu abrité, where the sea is kept down au bout du chemin. Give me a courtyard, two fountains, three high windows with stained glass. I so long to be fragile. The nurses wear soft shoes and bring iced water in terracotta jugs. The, the sheets are starched linen. We take showers in silence with our muscles bent under thick streams. When my lover comes to call, he changes in a small booth outside so as to look sober in thin cotton slacks and faded pink espadrilles. My body stays on the bed and my chin gets its tremors. Lieu abrité where no music plays and the quiet is underwater quiet. I hear from my first love today. He has the smallest, neatest bones in his great piano-playing hands. I have no lieu abrité. My old love, my new love, the man I tried kissing who tasted of fermented apricot. The sea is blood temperature. This place has no doors. Next we have Martin Crucifix, poet, critic, teacher and blogger reading some poems from his forthcoming collection from Salt, Between a Drowning Man. The poems he reads here are taken from his sequence, Works and Days, 
which have, as their inspiration, Hesiod's original and Indian Vakana poems from the 10th to 12th centuries. More about this can be found on the website poetryworthhearing.biz. These four short poems come from my new book called Between a Drowning Man, due for publication from Salt in autumn 2023. The poems appear in the section called Works and Days, and they are a good deal to the so-called Vakana poems associated with religious protest movements in India in the 10th and 12th centuries. Using plain language, repetition and refrain, they were written to praise, but also expressed personal anger puzzlement, even despair. I have explained you can make them talk after Basavana. I have explained you can make them talk when the madness is on them. There will be days you can urge them to talk when they are caught a glancing blow at the crossing. You can persuade them to talk by ducking their heads under water. Sometimes you can lure them into speech on the pillow afterwards, drawing a trail of hair from their forehead. But try as you might, you can't make them talk when they're struck dumb by riches, or the bridges are down. That I'm comfortable after Basavana. That I'm comfortable with metre and feet is not something you ought to assume. Don't hem me in with drums and numbers or the beating of your fingers. There's so much more to understand about iams and dactyls and about repallics and gazels. I've heard of them, but remotely. I will sing, damn it, just as I see fit. I'm convinced nothing will hurt me. I have my refrain from Basavana, but not rivers. All the bridges are down. Oh, Twitter storm after Mahad Devika. O Twitter storm of geese across the placid lake, beside the new varnished boats for hire by the hour, don't you know? He would watch for chalky smudges in the blue sky, beyond the aerials, above the broken roof tiles, don't you know? Those revelatory diaries in the attic, undiscovered, each remembering more than he could recall. Don't you know? Above the plaster-boarded ceiling, the light rose, above the crackling nylon sheets, above her weary limbs, don't you know? Above her slack-muscled limbs, wrapped in his arms, the local station playing, all the bridges down. The six-pack on the side, after Basavana. The six-pack on the side of the bus is a god. The jade earring and the hair care. The clock is a sinister and impassive god. For the ancients, rumour was a kind of god. The data set, the next level, my mobile phone with its allure of a liquid retina screen, the purity of product, the window display, all these are gods. The parking assist, the speed of delivery, the hemp tote bag are also gods. The ill-proofread prize-winning plaque is a god 
the god of Wi-Fi, if we curse its absence? And when did difference become a god, an identity we have then made a god? Whatever is shredded or faked or redacted is a god, and what is tortured always becomes a god. So many gods, oh, there are so many gods, so little space left to set my feet. How long since I lost a place to lay my head? All the bridges are down. Now, Jenny Lewis, the inspirational poet and teacher, who has nurtured poets in Oxford and much further afield, talks about poems she thinks are worth reading. I think the first thing that influenced me in loving cadences of language was that our granny was very religious and my father died when I was a baby and so my mum had to go out to work and so our granny used to read us the Bible and tell us Bible stories and that was my first introduction really to language. And it was so majestic, the movement of language and sonorous and such appeal to the emotions, really. And then I remember when I was learning to read, when I must have been about four, I suppose, and I suddenly, one day, I remember the first time I discovered that words rhyme. And I remember running to my mum in the kitchen. She'd just had a day's work and was really tired. And I'd written this little poem about Mr. Hare went out to play in the hay one sunny day. And I, I was so excited by that fact. I had quite a solitary childhood because my sister, we went to a sort of charity boarding school when we were seven. And my sister's two years older than me. So I had two years really on my own with my granny, who was quite deaf. And all I did was read. I just read and read as an escape and as an adventure. I suppose the first poetry I really fell in love with was Keats. And that was it. And it so chimed with all the turbulent teenage emotions and hormones that are rushing around you at that age. I mean, for example, Ode to Melancholy was a complete, like a drug. I used to say it and I knew it by heart. And just those first lines, no, no, go not to Lethe, neither twist wolf's bane, tight rooted for its poisonous wine, nor suffer thy pale forehead to be kissed by nightshade, ruby grape of proserpine. I mean, all the sounds are so wonderful. And then the lovely, wonderful last stanza, she dwells with beauty, beauty that must die and joy whose hand is ever at his lips, bidding adieu, and aching pleasure nigh turning to poison while the bee mouse sips. I, in the very temple of delight, veils melancholy had her sovereign shrine, though seen of none save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. His soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. So after Keats, my next, which I think happens 
a lot of people was Wilfred Owen. Wilfred Owen uses half rhyme, which I think, I don't know if that's a Welsh. I know he's only half Welsh, or that's disputed, but he certainly grew up on the borders of Wales, didn't he? They must have heard the language. But I always think half rhyme is like put a minor key, so it's very suitable for war poetry. And this is um, greater love. Red lips are not so red as the stained stones kissed by the English dead. Kindness of wooed and wooer seems shame to their love pure. O oh, love, your eyes lose lure when I behold eyes blinded in my stead. Your slender attitude trembles not exquisite like limbs knife-skewed, rolling and rolling there where God seems not to care till the fierce love they bear cramps them in death's extreme decrepitude. Your voice sings not so, so soft Though even as wind murmuring through raftered loft, your dear voice is not dear, gentle and evening clear, as theirs whom none now fear. Now earth has stopped their piteous mouths that cough. Heart, you were never hot, nor large, nor full like hearts made great with shot. And though your hands be pale, Paler are all which trail your cross through flame and hail. Weep, you may weep, for you may touch them not. And that's the most extraordinary poem. This huge amount of emotion that's been channeled somehow into through words to have the most incredible impact. I think partly because he was so young. Young people relate to him and Keats because they died so young. So they're icons for youth in many ways. I studied art when I left school. I went to the Ruskin School of Art. So I, poetry sort of rather took a back seat. The next uh, poet that I became very fascinated by was in when I was doing my degree in English at Teddy Hall, St Edmund Hall. I started it in... 1998, I think. The first term we looked at medieval writers, and so Ancrina Wissa, you know, the rule book for anchoresses, mm -hmm. The Cloud of Unknowing, Julian of Norwich, and Marjorie Kemp. And I actually wrote my extended essay on Marjorie Kemp, and I became fascinated in that world and in the whole idea of love being secular and religious and how they crossed over so much and how then that tradition went into the troubadours. I was lucky enough to be taught by Bernard O'Donoghue and I used to go to his room at Wadden and we'd just talk about poetry and it was really like being in heaven. I thought heaven couldn't be any better than this, especially as at the end he'd always offer me a glass of sherry. So yes, the troubadours loving from afar, you know, the idea of the lady in her castle and the knight on, on the on the battlefield and the, this love and and the poetry comes in the longing. And that that's still so today if you listen to pop songs, popular music, mm -hmm. you know, it's about not being with the person you love. And also with troubadours, 
the the idea that love loving someone ennobles the person who's loving and then i went on to also love renaissance john dunn and also sir philip sydney all that idea of i am not i pity the tale of me about make you know this isn't really a confession a confessional poem astrophil and stella this is my fabrication so after that i did a an m phil at glamorgan i do recommend even if you have to get up at 5 a.m well if you're doing a full-time job doing that sort of guided study does introduce you to whole areas of literature and poetry that you might not otherwise have come across the other thing that i've learned a huge amount from is teaching because students come and i've taught on i taught weekly classes again all through continuing education i've taught on the undergraduate diploma and i've taught now on and i now teach on the master of studies and people come with all their wonderful hopes and some of them are absolutely brilliant and i feel quite daunted i say to them i can help you and i can you know steer you if you need it some real high flyers there and they bring projects that i have to do a lot of research on especially if if they're interested in linguistics which some some are and then i have to read books about critical theory on linguistics but I, it's all learning every mm. every time and then i suppose what led me to my first book my first book published by oxford poets was fathom and there was one poem in that about my father who was a very remote figure in my life because he died when i was a baby but my sister and i found a photograph album that he'd taken of photos he'd taken in iraq when he was a young soldier fighting in the mesopotamian world war mesopotamian campaign this poem was about my father who leading his troops across the desert guided by stars which was a very was very fanciful because that never happened you know he did ride camels and he was a, a second lieutenant in the army and exposed to the most horrific hell so i started researching that and i was lucky enough to get an arts council grant for a dual, dual project one was to write a play for the pegasus theater youth theater which was called after gilgamesh and the other was a collection of poetry called taking mesopotamia as i had just said teaching i come across a lot of new things that way i'm currently teaching chinese students so i'm reading a lot of chinese poetry in translation which is lovely it's the nature linked to nature and i think it's really important to read journals even though sometimes i don't really want to but i i usually subscribe to four every year and i rotate them i try different ones out because i think if you're going to be sending poems to journals a you need to know what sort of poetry they like and b you need to support them because mm-hmm. that's the most of them don't have arts council funding and the only way they can keep going is if you buy their journal. So at the moment, I'm subscribed to PN Review, which I have to really because Carcanet published me. <laughs> poetry Review, Modern Poetry and Translation, The North, 
and Rattle, which is an American. I thought I'd try because there are lo lo lots and lots of American journals too, which people could try sending to. And the other thing, which I think I, I said to you, was readings, list, hearing people at readings, go to readings and please buy their books and pamphlets. If And the other thing was festivals. So I did some blogging for Stanza this year. Stanza is probably, I would say, one of the, the biggest and best festivals. They pay everyone. They put everyone up. It's a really big supported by the Scottish Arts Council, I suppose. And I'd done a, a lot of research and looked every, everyone up who was coming, and they had a wonderful range of languages from Japanese, Chinese, Arabic, Persian, uh, Dutch. This year, a new person, a new director had taken over called Lucy Burnett, and she worked with someone else called Annie. I can't remember her name now, but sorry, but they were made a terrific team. I did a lot of interviewing. They told me who to look out for, who was sort of cutting edge. And so I did a series of blogs for Carcanet. If people want to go to the Carcanet website and look at the blog, they can look Stanza Festival because Stanza, it's at, held in St. Andrews. It's uh, St. Andrews University up in Scotland. But I saw some extraordinary poets, and one of the most moving events was a Ukrainian poet. Literally, one of them had been smuggled across the border into Poland and had come sort of by, by express train and however they could get to there just to be at the festival. That, I thought, talking about war poetry at the beginning, what could be more important and more relevant? And of course, the event was completely sold out and, and the poets were wonderful and brave. <clears throat> I discovered marvellous poets like, I don't even know how to say her name, Anne-Marie She grew up next to a home for mothers and illegitimate babies and her mother was constantly taking them in and was a very kind person and so they they had this foundling place on their doorstep as she herself was a child growing up and this is a poem called it's a long poem called the foundling crib and even boland from a poem called a child of our time she's taken an epigraph it says yesterday i knew no lullaby but you have taught me overnight to order this song, which takes from your final cry its tune, from your unreasoned end its reason. And I'm just, I'll just read one page because I think it's quite an interesting structure. She starts every line with pity. And so this is section nine. Pity the foundlings in the wake of Arbella, gathered at a rare fire, cupped hands begging the heat. Pity their uplit cheekbones, like the death petals of a cursed buttercup. Pity their fingers, swollen and stiff. Pity their skins, needled to poisons, to trial medicines. Pity their skinny legs on hiring day, stumbling calf-like round the ring. Pity mouths prized open, gums bared to the world, 
shirts raised up by strangers who tapped a buyer's code on rib and chest. Were they ready to work? Were they able? Pity those workers returned by masters to the hospital with a token note. John Wheatley covered in bruises. Mary Templeton found selling her bones for bread. Rose Carter would not say her Protestant prayers. Mary Dutchman complained of being beaten too often. Fred Nelson, a very bad boy. Catherine Potter, not worth the price. I think people talk about, is poetry important? What is the point of poetry? And I think a poem like this sort of poetry and this poet it just sort of says it all really mm. how, how important poetry is another person i discovered was harriet tarlow she did this wonderful anthology the grand aslant mm. an anthology of radical landscape poetry so it's important because i i wanted to read and see what other people are doing sometimes if you're trying to write you don't want to read other people's work you need just that sound chamber in your own head but I think it's really important to know to to read other people there's one by Wendy Mulford called Goblin Coombe I'll just read the first few lines it was composed in the 1970s it says everything underfoot has a name is named each anonymous grass moss repeats a history how long the path, who walked it, what used to grow, when disturbance came. That's dog's mercury. The only exciting thing about it comes early. This was a wonderful poet I discovered, Tagara Muzanan Hamo, who's Zimbabwean, and he, he uses a lot of different forms and layouts. But this book, Virga, is extraordinary in that Virga, the title relates to the meteorological phenomenon in which a column, shaft or band of rain or snow is seen falling from a cloud, but it never reaches the earth. It evaporates before touchdown. And so this is like a metaphor for grief. This book is about grief. And it was a Poetry Book Society recommendation. And I heard him read online, and he's actually in this country at the moment doing the round. So if anyone has a chance to go and hear him in person, that would be great. Emily Berry was there, who, of course, was the, the editor of Poetry Review. And I was quite interested in her poetry. She takes sort of little patches from other people's work and blends it into her work. But I would like to just talk a bit about Fiona Benson's. I think she's an absolutely heart-stoppingly good poet. She's so wide-ranging. And this is, it's called Mama Cockroach, I Love You. And I, it was uh, one of the best single poem, I think, last year. She uses language so voluptuously. Because you cosy with the aunties in your reeking slums and are intimate and sweet, because you begrudge no one a meal, but ooze a fecal trail to lead your commune to its source like a dirty bee. Because you are joyfully promiscuous, because you pouch your young and hide them in the sweaty creases of the house, near suppurating food, so they'll hatch to a feast. 
or keep your eggs with you in a special purse shaped like a kidney bean and clutch it fast to reinsert them into your abdomen and womb them there or carry them as yolks and give live birth. Then feed, feed your pale brood secretions from your anus or your armpit glands like milk. I mean, it's that energy of her writing is extraordinary. This is about Pacify. Pacify goes home. Call me wide shining light. Call me heat. Call me lust. Call me daughter of the sun. Call me the woman who tried to conform. The one who walks to the, t to the temple without shame and gives herself to the moon. The one who lies with a bull. Calls me a body used by God. An instrument of myth. A body. The gods hoard out to punish a king. Call me wise and altruistic healer. Call me foreigner and witch. Call me mother of a deformed child lost to the maze or the hospital or asylum. Call me mother of a deformed child and I'll tell you there's no such thing. Only gentleness, only perfection. Call me the one whose son you couldn't love. Call me stranger, you ordered as a bride and never desired. Call me witch who flew home when everyone she loved had left or died. Poetry that sort of goes right back through to Wilfredo and to Keats, for me anyway. I think Jenny was struggling with the Gaelic pronunciation of the name Anne-Marie Niharon, the writer of The Poison Glen. You can find more about Jenny and all the texts she mentions on poetryworthhearing.biz So, back to the poems. Here is the wonderful Lucy Ingrams. Sentence The poem has an epigraph. Kairos, an opening or opportunity. Midwinter work, to sit out the afternoon and sift the rubble syllables left to you by illness, threading and rethreading sounds, listening for messages. Foi foi akla, you laugh. Upe, compi emetery, and slide your hand to mine. Odi, you sigh, then raise an eyebrow. Something why? And trying. This seems important. I think so, yes, I nod. I think so too. I've agreed this way so often, which often grates on you. You look me over quizzically. The year's Nadir, midwinter. All day, I've held a lantern picture in my mind, a Bronze Age horse in chalk, three hills or four away, that works the seasons round to pull the light and draw time's line across the sky. Declyton, now you tell me, for my Rosie. I smile too widely, wildly fending off a grief flare. At dawn exactly this solstice morning, 
The sun rose exactly horseback to race the short day breakneck. Your grip tightens on my fingers. I'll be all right, darling. The fluent sentence passing like an arrow through an opening. I start. We stare and meet inside each other's comprehension. And at the window's instant, see the light has won the west. Sinking pyrite through the dark. Six PM flight. The poem has an epigraph. Upside down in air. T. S. Eliot. Always, what is home? At our laps, the pooling sky, as though our knees had streamed the soda cloud. A model, abstract world, falling steeply away at our heels. Squint up, bright flood of the troposphere. Too light yet for a star. Instead, a tiny high plane chalk. Its cursive powder jet trail. Peer down. The quiet earth, landed into map, on which the blue hour deepens. Then bursts a quick of spark, that fastens to another. Flares zodiac streets, a constellation city, around a beam of river. Galaxies of motorway, a single planetary farm. Homesick as desiring angels, hunched at window seats, we brood the stars electric. Hang this heaven below. Close. And if, in the half light, stroke after stroke, as your paddle slips closer to night and its double, you caught the river awakening. If, in the stream of its sleeve, the road bridge trailed graffiti like weed, liquid geese spill from their brims, deep water trees gathered in shoals to net stars. Which stream would you meet it with? A floating canoe, to ply nexus shore between plains, between elements, revealed to. And reveling, or a falling canoe, dropping through willow depths, meteorite giddy, to close on the floor mud, roof to its fright. Next, with two poems, a new to poetry worth hearing, is Damon Young. Coercive control carves a belly of rubble from which to emerge, and sculpts corrosive drops from the sobs of your daughter. Shapes the echo waves of foundation-shaking door slams, and overwhelms all escape routes. 
stiffens a baffled body reaching for sleepfulness by unleashing a crackle of lightning, is a home with no place to relax and the inability to relax elsewhere for fear of what return will bring, is your face sinuous with rage or dead with punitive silence? Thomas Bew's Armistice. My great-great-uncle Thomas Bew foretold his death. In a poem sent home to mother, he wrote of the mounds of clay that served as graves across the fields of Flanders, of angelic voices that rose from that earth and carried loving words to mothers lost in deep grey pockets of grief. Yet, in 1918, his voice was within his torn body as he was ferried, still pulsing, back to his mother's care. I picture him on Armistice Day, a window cracked open to skin-pricking November air, bells finding the corners of his room above sheets stained the colour of rust. As peace dropped like blossom, his body remained a battlefield, a quagmire of white blood cells and sepsis, wounds infected by the Flanders clay at the moment of their infliction. As life and rhythm returned to the town's arteries, he died amidst the rebirth. He and Rhoda Bew, drops in a wave of loss that outlasted the silence of guns. Our next poet is the artist Diana Bell with a reflective piece. Death. How do we learn about death? At first, it's a dark magician that changes the pet rabbit into a piece of fur or performs a joke by throwing the dog by its throat at the wheels of a car and watching it die and enjoying you cry. Sometimes death is waiting. It wraps Granny in a black shawl because she can't walk anymore. She might fall. When we are older, we know our parents must go. They can't stay. Death will find an excuse. It's easy in war. Your dad was shot, they say. He was a brave man. And your mum, she wanted to go. She was getting slow. So death slides her away and leaves us to pray. Death is greedy for grief and conjures a trick to make the loved one sick when there isn't a cure. Then our sorrow is like falling leaves, each day a few more, dropping silently while death waits, smiling. Death enjoys power. Sometimes it comes in a blink like a thief to find a child, a happy one, a loved one, to steal, to keep, to make it hurt so the family drown, go down into the cavern where grief swirls in dark water. Death does not always win, for this child has no fear. She walks 
smiling into the night, treading on death's cloak without a tear. As we get old, death is a visitor outside who we didn't invite, but who might sneak in and turn off the light. Sometimes we plead with death to come, to extinguish pain, to take our loved one. Then death creeps quietly in, halts breath, smothers life in silent silk and scatters memories that glitter on dark days. And finally, we welcome back Trisha Broomfield with two poems. Akrotiri. It's never cold this time of year, they said. We filled plastic water bottles from the kettle, tucked them between our sheets, ate our meals in front of the oven's open door. It's never this windy this time of year, they said. Gusts strong-armed me away from you, pitching me towards the rocks and waves below, your voice singing in my ears. It never snows this time of year, they said. Iced confetti bit our cheeks as our legs cramped up the hill to the taverna. We ate tiny fillow pillows of feta and spinach, the air warm with garlic and oregano. We rolled bright oranges across the table, bought daily bread and yoghurt, missed a decent cuppa. You taught me backgammon, which I won. We'd learnt parrot's claw and ferret's toe, failing to grasp the lisping perfection of the locals' paracalo esferito. The sun shone mirthlessly on our Englishness as we wandered downhill to the beach, where tar pinched my bottom. They don't clean the sand this time of year, they said. An ancient man swam, turtle head raised. Tiptoeing, gritty memories of Skegness, I pushed out, breaststroke remembered. You caught me on camera, scrabbling salt water while the sea ate my breath. Tea and cake. So good to see your starry eyes. Dark brown shadow emphasised. Effortless, you empathise. Your talent always that way lies. So good to share that pot of tea. To stir up laughter with the leaves. Time steals our youth like wicked thieves. The scone for you and cake for me. I love your hair that side of grey. Back in the day in autumn blaze, those memories a rosy haze. So good to hear your voice today. Your silver flashes as you speak, with earrings, bangles, chunky rings. Your zest for life bubbles and sings. An optimist, you don't see bleak. The cake, mere crumbs, the pot, empty. It's time for us to say goodbye. We don't accept that years will fly. You are still you, and me, I'm me. And that's it for episode 10. Remember, for information about the poets and texts, 
go to poetryworthhearing.biz. If you'd like to contribute or send a comment, write to poetryworthhearing at gmail.com. Music